things when you're on vacation and you're used to being in the pulpit every Sunday. Uh, we were traveling last Sunday and, man, the worst thing could have happened, happened. Dwayne and Renee, who we went with, said, Terry, pull up one of your sermons and let's listen to it. Have you ever had to listen to yourself preach? I don't know how you folks listen. Or do you? <laughs> but anyway, I got to hear me preach for a while. And it was okay. But it didn't fill my desire to be in the pulpit. So we're glad to be home. and Really glad to start a new sermon series this morning. A sermon series that's going to take us clear through the end of the year. Do you realize it's five weeks till Thanksgiving? Do you realize it's nine weeks till Christmas? Unbelievable. And uh, I'm so excited about the Christmas season. Can I just give you a little tidbit of what we're going to do this Christmas season? We're going to be doing this theme. How many of you picked up on the theme this morning of the new sermon series? And it is God is good. We're going to take that clear through the Christmas holidays. And you know how we've always done the Advent uh, lighting of the candles. Uh, This year we're going to have a special emphasis for our kids. We're going to have the kids read the scriptures, do the candles. And I'm going to try to preach on a level of of a, well, you say, Pastor, you always talk on the level of a third grader. But I'm going to make make a specific effort to, to preach on a level that will leave... No misunderstanding whatsoever about how good God is to any age group. So I'm, I'm really excited. I'm looking forward. I've never done this before uh, with having kids be the feature. And so you have kids, grandkids, and, and you want to see them be involved. I know we're going to have some special Christmas music from our kids during the holiday season. But that's, that's a ways away. But until then, we're going to just build up. Talk about the goodness of God. How many of you remember the first prayer that you learned by heart? I can tell you what mine was. And I can spit it out in about 3.76 seconds. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Amen. I learned to say it that fast because I was usually wanting to get sleep. I, I, I wish I had a dollar for every time I prayed that prayer. It's a great prayer. Some of you may say, well, that wasn't mine that I remember. Mine was, God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. Amen. Now, as simple as that prayer is, there's wisdom. In just those simple words. God is great. God is good. God is great in a way that cannot be said about any other person, any place, or anything. God is so amazing. You know, uh, one of the things that we did on vacation, and if you ever get an opportunity to do this, trust me, you need to do it. They just opened the Ark Encounter in, in Williamstown, Kentucky a couple of years ago. And, and close by it is the Creation Museum, which gives all the, all the studies about the biblical account of how the world came to be. If you ever have an opportunity to go, do not miss it. It's one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. 
But but the thing about it is, as wonderful a place as that was, and as many good things as that thing is, those places are doing for the people that come to see it, it falls far short of God's goodness. God's amazing. He's the only all-sufficient one. Everything else will never touch... Everything else, let me say it this way. Everything else that we will ever touch or we will ever discover is dependent upon something. That is, it has needs. It requires uh, something to cause it or or to continue it or to, to comfort it. But God is not like any other thing. He's self-existing. He's self-sustaining. He's self-satisfying. God has no needs outside of Himself. The all Sufficient one. God Almighty. Now I know that there are people who view God as being nothing more than a projection of some type in our minds. But the reality is that we all see and are a projection of God's mind. He created us in His image. How many of you are happy with you? Well, you may as well be. God created you just the way He wanted you. And He loves you just the way that you are. It's the the writer to Acts, Dr. Luke, says to us in Acts chapter number 17, verse number 28, he says, It's in Him that we live and move and exist, or as another translation says, have our being. It's in, it's in Him. Um, just as easily as, as you could let go of the thought of anything that I'm saying to you this morning, right now, and move on to thinking about what you might have for lunch. You know, we, we did that a lot on vacation too. Deciding what we were going to do for lunch. I put on every pound that I've lost over the last six weeks. Trying to decide if we wanted, well, I didn't even consider it the salad plate. Um, probably should have. But you might be sitting here thinking, now, for lunch today, I know all of these delicious foods are going to be back there because we know how our ladies cook, right? So am I going to discipline myself and just stick to the salads or am I going to go for the good stuff? Right? You know, God could have just thought of this universe or of you and me and said, you know what? It's really no big deal. I can just turn my thoughts to myself and enjoy who I am. God could have done that. And in the process, he could have just let the universe cease to exist. But thankfully, God's not only great, but God is good. The true glory of God's immense greatness lies in the fact that in God there is incomparable goodness. That's what I want to reflect on with you in this new sermon series that, as I said, is going to take us through the holidays to the end of the year. And I want to begin by just asking you to consider this question. Who is good You know, that's a question that was brought to Jesus in Mark chapter number 10. 
Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, a man once approached Jesus asking as he was walking. As a matter of fact, when he got to Jesus, the Bible tells us that he fell on his knees before him. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, now in saying this, Jesus was not suggesting that he wasn't good. Yes, he was and he still is. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the reason Jesus answered the man in this way was because he knew how much the, the human concept of goodness and what goodness really means needs stretching. I mean, we, we have how many different ideas of what goodness looks like in this room this morning? But you see, the problem is we throw this word good around a lot. And we barely even grasp its full meaning. You know, you can go into some department store this holiday season and, and Santa will ask little Susie when she gets up and sits on his lap. He'll say, Susie, were you good this year? And Susie says, oh, yes, Santa, I only kicked my brother a few times. She thought she was good. Or we come to church and, and we give the standard greeting. How are you doing? And the standard reply is, oh, I'm doing good. When the reality is that the one replying to the question may be facing unspeakable things going on in their life. Horrible medical diagnosis, disastrous financial situations, a marriage that may be crashing on the rocks, and yet we give the standard reply. Oh, I'm good. We also toss around the word good. When the head of a sales team dodges a scolding for failing to close a key deal. And he does it in this way. He plays on the boss's vanity. He'll tell the boss, you know, I, I know if they'd had an opportunity to meet you, they'd have made this deal for sure. And as the boss walks out of the room thinking how wonderful he is, your fellow employee says, oh, that was good. That was good. It's a word we toss around a lot. I think you get the picture the concept of good, at least in my estimation, is kind of a squishy thing. For example, I'm good because I could have been worse. Or I'm good because I know that there are some people who are worse than I. I'm good because I know how to get other people to feel good about me. Or I can at least make them think that I'm good. But it's not quite the same, however, as actually being good. Even when selfishness or pride isn't our driving motivation, we often, we often settle into this limited definition of good simply because we lack experience with something that is more good. Does that make sense? It may not be good English, but it makes sense. 
What do I mean by that? Well, for example, most people thought that Michael Jordan was the definition of a really good basketball player. At least until LeBron James came along. <laughs> people thought that their iPhone 6 or 7 was good. Until the iPhone 8 and now iPhone 10 came out. I used to think that I was good at math. Until my grandson Chase began winning awards for his math skills. Little knucklehead won third place in the states of Texas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas as a fifth grader in math. And he starts rattling off all of these things, and I'm thinking, thank God for calculators. You know, Jesus told that man who came to him, fawning over him, he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, we know that over and over again, and this is the main text for my message this morning, over and over again, the Bible declares, for example, in Psalm 100, the fourth verse, <clears throat> the Lord is good. For only his love is eternal. And over and over again, you find that throughout Scripture. The message of the Scriptures is that God alone is good in the absolute sense. In fact, the English word good is taken from the word God. That's what his name means. In its original definition, goodness meant godliness. Boy, now think about that for a second. Earlier generations understood that if you wanted to teach your kids to be good or to strive after goodness in your own life, then you must train your kids and, and raise them in the ways of God or train yourself in the ways of God. And the result would be that you would be good. You know... I fully believe, friends, to the core of my being, that the deterioration of goodness that we see in our world today is because we've turned our gaze away from God. We've forgotten what real goodness looks like and how to attain it through being good like God is good. That's why the psalmist could say again in Psalm 34, verse number 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then the psalmist adds this, How happy is the man who takes refuge in him. Now, if I'm going to take refuge in someone, I want to know that that someone or that something is adequate to provide refuge, right? I'm telling you, there's no better place, no better person that you can take refuge in than God. Because God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. So what is it about God that defines goodness in the way that it needs to be understood? The great Bible scholar A.W. Tozer defined it like this, and I quote, The goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of good toward men. 
He's tenderhearted and of quick sympathy. His unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. And by his very nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness. And he takes holy pleasure in the health and hope of his people. End quote. Now, those are, those are lovely words. But where do we actually see this alleged type of goodness? Well, if you're trying to teach your kids or, or convince your neighbor of goodness, what actual evidence would you point to in order to demonstrate that God is so unusually good? Well, I had an example of it just the other night. Uh, standing out on the beach near Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, hearing the waves behind us, and looking up at a clear blue sky and seeing what were the beginnings of stars beginning to come out in the evening sky. As beautiful as that view is, I've, I'm smart enough to know, I've had enough education to know that what I'm looking at is a universe that in no way pos- that in, in no way could make my life possible. I mean, that's, you know, scientists have said that the overwhelmingly escapable truth of about 99.9 and a whole lot of other 9% of the space that they've been able to see through the most technologically advanced telescopes, they say from what they've seen, it can all be summed up in four words out there. The four words are darkness lifelessness, emptiness, and unspeakable, unthinkable cold. Now, I know that some of us in this room think that here in Kansas this coming January is going to closely resemble that, but I'm telling you that it doesn't even come close. Um, you've known people, as, as do I, that sometimes point to all the suffering and all the struggling that happens on this earth as being evidence that God is not quite so good as what we've played him up to be. Now, I don't mean to take anyone's pain or anyone's loss lightly because my own family has, has been wounded by some of those things that have caused suffering and struggling and inability or difficulty, I guess I should say, to cope with things like loss and disease and, and, and all sorts of other mayhem. But here's how I look at it. Give me five minutes... Of the light, the life, the learning, the laughter, and the love that God has made possible on this planet. Give me that any time over five million years of the darkness, the lifelessness, the emptiness, and the unthinkable cold out there. God has given that to each and every one of us. Think of those things. Light, life, learning, laughter. And love. God's made all that possible. As human beings, we have this stunning way of focusing on what I like to call missing fruit and snakes in the grass. We focus on those things a lot. When all the while we're surrounded by an absolute abundance of God's blessing. Hey, anyone else do that? 
we, we tend to be attracted by, not attracted to, but attracted by all the bad stuff. When there's this multitude of good things that, that God has for us to, to become our focus. And yet sometimes we can get caught up in not seeing those things, not seeing the forest for the trees, as someone has said. And apparently that's been an issue for human beings since the beginning of time. But here's what I've learned, and I learned it again this morning. I got up out of bed, and I found that gravity works perfectly again. Right? It still works. And from the looks of everybody that I've seen in the church building this morning, the miracle of cellular life is still operating quite remarkably. The sun is still just the right distance from this earth to keep us from freezing to death or being fried to a crisp. So far this morning, I've been able to enjoy all kinds of experiences that some theologians call common graces. Those simple gifts that come with being made a human being. For me this morning, I've tasted coffee. I've smelled perfume, I've heard music, I've seen beauty, and I've felt the touch of warm hands shaking mine. Those are good things. At least they're good in the midst of a world that offers 180 degrees the opposite. And if I make those types of things my focus, just think what opportunities to love, to laugh, and to learn, or to share with those who have less of those gifts, await me and you this afternoon. I can guarantee you that as a part of our lunch following this service, there's going to be a lot of laughter. There's going to be a lot of love expressed. There's going to be a lot of good food partaken of. And we're going to enjoy the fact that we are part of the family of God. We take those things for granted all too easily. And do you know why we're a part of the family of God? Because we have expressed belief in the saving work of Jesus, the head of the family. We've been saved because He loved us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son... Wow. He didn't have to. But he did. Because he loved us and because he is good. Now the Bible tells us that after creating life on this planet. Moses told us in Genesis chapter 1 verse number 31. That God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. And I'm inclined to agree with him. I'm inclined to believe that the grace that I've been allowed to enjoy just for even the past five minutes, especially in view of what else is out there for me to experience, is evidence that God is good. Are you in agreement with that? Good. Then I'll go on. I'm also moved by what the Bible excuse me, shows me of God's goodness in the stories of the Old Testament. 
The psalmist says in Psalm 145, verse number 9, The Lord is good to everyone. His compassion rests on all that He has made. Now, I see God's mercy in the way that He treated Adam and Eve. Here were two people who had broken God's trust by partaking of the forbidden fruit in the garden. They had deeply wounded God's heart. And yet the Bible says that rather than killing them or abandoning them, what did God do? God clothed them with animal skins and watched over them. I see His goodness in sparing Noah's family from the great flood. Some people look at that story and say, how could a good God send a calamity like that flood and destroy every living thing on the earth? But if you consider the incredible wickedness that had overrun the earth by that time, it's amazing that God spared anyone. That He gave the human family another opportunity to grow and to multiply and to inhabit the earth. The goodness of God is evident in His calling of Abraham and the birth of a nation whose name is Israel. It's there in His careful preservation of the Hebrew people Through famines, through pestilences, through wars, God has protected that little nation. There's no argument in that. I remember hearing back in 1968 during the Seven Day War that the Arab nations that came against the little nation of Israel when they were fighting in the war planes in the sky, an Egyptian pilot remarked, it was as if the angels of heaven... We're coming against us. Well, I got news for that Egyptian pilot. It wasn't as if. (laughs) It was God protecting His people. God preserving His people. I, I see God delivering that little nation from slavery in Egypt, giving them a, a magnificent law that would eventually become the framework for the laws and the moral codes of countless other nations to come, even, even our very own. I see the goodness of God in the way that He he fed the Jewish nation while they're wandering in the wilderness. How He guided them to a promised land and raised up judges and priests and kings to lead those people. God made His goodness known through the voices of all those prophets who warned Israel of spiritual dangers. Who saw those people ignore God and His plan and and be turned over to to enemies who took them into to captivity. And yet when they repented, what did God do? In His mercy, He restored them. That's goodness. I see God's goodness being made known to calling, through calling people not only warning them of spiritual dangers, but calling them to justice and, and having compassion for, for widows and orphans and the poor and strangers. Even though the exiles that His people endured as the consequence of their waywardness, God never gave up on them. And you know what? The same thing can be true for, said for every one of us. In spite of our waywardness, God's never given up on us. Do you find that amazing? 
Do you find that a testimony to God's goodness? I can think of many times in my life when God would have had every right to give up on me. But he didn't. And he didn't because he's good. Now, quite likely, it's hard to find anybody else that's good like God is good. Ever heard of the story of Corey Ten Boom? Wonderful story, The Hiding Place. There's, there's one passage that I remember that has stuck in my mind for many, many years. I read that book probably when I was a teenager for the first time. But, but there's one particular part of that book that just sticks in my mind, and I want to share it with you because it testifies to the goodness of God. For those of you who may not know, Corey and her family were arrested and taken to the prison camps of Nazi Germany during World War II. And the barracks where Corey and her sister Betsy were kept in that Nazi concentration camp known as, as Ravensbrück was terribly overcrowded. And, and Corey told of how the barracks, at least her particular barrack, was flea-infested. Now, they'd been able to miraculously somehow smuggle a Bible into the camp. And in that Bible, they had read in, that in all things they were to give thanks. And that God can use anything for good. Well, Betsy decided... Now, remember, Betsy's Corey's sister. Betsy decided that it would be good to thank God for the fleas. Now, this was too much for Corey... Corey said she couldn't do no such thing as give thanks for the fleas. But Betsy insisted, so Corey gave in, and she prayed to God, thanking him even for the fleas that infested their barrack. Now, over the next several months, following them thanking God for that, a wonderful but curiously strange thing happened. They found that the German stormtroopers in control of the concentration camp, for some reason never came into their barracks. Now, what did that mean for them? Well, among other things, in the other barracks, Jewish women were regularly being assaulted. But the guards not coming into Corey and Betsy's barracks meant that they and the other women with them were not only not assaulted, but it also meant that they were able to do the unthinkable. They were able to hold open Bible studies, to have open times of prayer in their barrack in the heart of a Nazi concentration camp. Through those Bible studies and through those prayer meetings, countless numbers of Jewish women came to faith in Jesus Christ, many of whom would soon be gassed in the gas chambers of Ravensbrook. Only at the end of their stay, just before Corey's release, her sister never survived, but just before Corey's release did she discover why the guards had left them alone and would not enter their barracks. It was because of the fleas. <laughs> I think that's why James says in James chapter 1, verse number 17, give thanks to God for every good and perfect gift that comes from above.
even if they're fleas. No, James didn't say that, but you get my drift. Thank God. Thank God for how he uses all things work together for good in the lives of those who love him. That's an amazing verse, one that I never understood for about the first 25 or so years of my life. When God says he uses all things, that means he uses all things. The good, the bad, the unfortunate, the tragic. God uses all those things to accomplish his ultimate good in the lives of those who love him. And who are called according to his purposes. All things. Whatever you're going through, God's using it for your good. He's going to turn it around for your good. Think about Joseph back in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. I mean, this poor guy. (laughs) His brothers hated him. They sell him into Egyptian slavery. They tell his dad he's been attacked by a wild animal and killed. He's picked up out of a pit by a bunch of gypsies, taken back to Egypt, where he's put in charge of a house uh, of one of the Egyptian generals, whose wife accuses Joseph of raping her or trying to rape her. Then he's sent to prison. It just keeps getting gooder, doesn't it? And in those prisons... All there were were life sentences. But miraculously by the hand of God. Joseph was able to provide some things for the Pharaoh that no one else could. And so Pharaoh had him released. And Pharaoh gained such confidence in him that he put Joseph in the number two position. In all the land of Egypt. Storing up grain for an approaching famine. Do you know it was that grain? That allowed the bloodline of the Lord Jesus Christ to continue to survive when Joseph's brothers came to him because they were starving to death and needed grain. And Joseph happened to be. How many of you believe in coinkydinks? It wasn't no coinkydink coincidence for those of you that aren't with me. God divinely ordained that. He took what the enemy meant for evil and turned it for good. Only God can do that. (laughs) The only one good like God is Jesus. God in the flesh. If If I never had the evidence of creation, if I'd never experienced common grace... If I'd never never had the opportunity of the story of the nation of Israel to instruct me in the ways of God. The person and the work of Jesus Christ would be more than enough to convince me of the character of God. Philip Yancey once wrote in his book. I just forgot the name of the book. Disappointment with God. It's the name of the book. He said, and I quote, I must admit that Jesus has revised in flesh many of my harsh and unpalatable notions about God. Things like, why am I a Christian? I sometimes ask myself, and to be perfectly honest, the reasons reduced to two. One, the lack of good alternatives. And two, Jesus. (laughs) 
I love that. Brilliant, untamed, tender, creative, slippery, irreducible, paradoxically humble. Jesus stands up to scrutiny. He is who I want my God to be. Now, can Jesus really be like God? When we see Jesus embracing forsaken lepers, when we see Jesus dining with outcasts of society, when we see Jesus stooping to wash the stinky feet of people about to abandon and betray Him, are you kidding me? That's what God is like? Yeah. That's what God's like. When Jesus is surrounded by a clamoring crowd and not only notices but actually stops to, to give His full attention to little people that others ignore or despise, when He declares His utmost compassion for prisoners, for the hungry, for the cold, for the sick, Matthew 25, what's the message? He's saying, when you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Above all else, when Jesus willingly allows His body to be beaten, to be flayed and ravaged for the sake of people who've turned their backs on Him, and when He sees His mother and, and Mary and His beloved disciple John there to comfort Him in His hour of loneliness, but what's He do instead of receiving their comfort? He tries to comfort them. He tries to comfort them. He knows what they're going through. And he's concerned about them giving up hope once he's gone. While he's hanging on that same cross, he looks to a, a dying thief on another cross next to him. And he promises to that thief, paradise. When his final aching breaths, Jesus prays for the very people that nailed him to that cross. Prays that God would forgive them for what they've done. Are you kidding me? Do you need any more evidence of Jesus' goodness? There's only two possible reasons why someone so sufficient in himself that he needs nothing from anyone else would desire to do and to say the very things that Jesus did. Either he's altogether crazy or he's very, very, very good. I vote for number two. We know he's not crazy. But we also know that he's very, very good. Jacob, worship team, would you come please? How do we need to be more like him? Why are we afraid of the future that he's walking into with us? What's stopping him from giving the entirety of our lives to him every day? There's really no good reason. 
He's good. Stand to your feet with me, please. Jesus, this is a foundational message for messages over the next few weeks that are to come. But Lord, I felt like you wanted me to say to your people this morning that we really need to understand perhaps as never before what goodness really looks like. As I've already stated, God, we, we've learned and we've been programmed to, to toss this word good around very carelessly. When the only real evidence of what good is is found in you. And in the things that you've done and the things that you've said to sustain your people. And Jesus, this morning, I know that there is a high likelihood that there are some sitting in this room today who, if they were 100% honest, would say, God, there's some things in my life right now that I just don't see your goodness in. We've all been there. We've all experienced that. When we have a month that has more months than our money will sustain us through, we sometimes question your goodness. When we've done our best to take care of this body that you've provided us with, and yet we we go to a physician who gives us a troubling diagnosis, we're tempted to say, why God? Where's your goodness in this? When we see someone whose life is filled with so much potential, so much drive, so much purpose that could be used for your kingdom and then tragically their lives are snuffed out. Our tendency is to say, God, I thought you were a good God. Where's the goodness in this? Lord, we need to understand That you are good. In spite of what our circumstances may try to tell us. You are good. Because you will take all of those things. In a way that only you can do. And still accomplish your purposes. And do a work in us that we never thought possible. Because you work all things together for our good. And Lord, if that someone is in this room this morning who, in total honesty, would 
say to you, not to me, not to anyone else in this room. God, there's some things going on in my life that I have to confess to you. I don't see. I don't see any good coming from them. I don't see your hand in these situations. In this very moment, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you. To encourage them and to compel them. To take a step of faith. To trust in you. In spite of their situations. In spite of their circumstances. And to know that you are a God. Who does all things well. Help them to know you. As their good, good father. Who when they are in need of a fish will not give them a serpent. But will give them exactly what they need. Because you're good. Jacob, sing that chorus for us, would you please?